So our scripture this morning is from John chapter 4, starting at verse 9. And this reading is from the uh, Common English Bible. Jesus is traveling from Judea to Galilee through Samaria. At noon, he stops outside the city of Sychar, where Jacob's well is located. The disciples have gone to the city to buy food. A woman comes to draw water from the well, and Jesus asks her to give him some water to drink. Then their conversation turns to a much deeper topic, beginning to read in John. Why do you, a Jewish man, ask for something to drink from me, a Samaritan woman? At that time, Jews and Samaritans didn't associate with each other. Jesus responded, If you recognized God's gift and who is saying to you, give me some water to drink, you would be asking him, and he would give you the living water. Sir, you you don't have a bucket. The well is deep. Where would you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave this well to us, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in those who drink it a spring of water that bubbles up into eternal life. Sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty and will never need to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, get your husband and come back here. I don't have a husband. And Jesus answered, You are right to say, I don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. And the man you are with now isn't your husband. You've spoken the truth. The woman said, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, and you and your people say that it is necessary to worship in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you and your people will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You and your people worship what you don't know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. But the time is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. The Father looks for those who worship him this way. God is spirit And it is necessary to worship God in spirit and truth. This is the word of the Lord. There's one thing I'm convinced of or feel strong convictions about. That is that preaching should have an element of urgency to it. In other words, it's a message that must be heard Um, and it's important for our lives. Um, Unfortunately, I'm not feeling that well today, and so the urgency is a little lacking. So I hope you have a sense of urgency in your listening, because it may not come through in its delivery. Today we're starting a new series of six weeks focusing on the dimensions of the spiritual life and practices, spiritual practices that are important to our, to our um, growth as Christians and deepening of our faith in relationship uh, to God, 
to, um, to those around us, and even our inward relationship. Um, we're told to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. In other words, with everything that we have. To love our neighbor in the way that we love ourselves. And so we're looking at those dimensions of those relationships. Practices dealing with our relationship with God. Practices dealing with our relationship with others. And even our relationship to ourselves. Um, so today we're going to talk about worship, uh, which has to do with our relationship with God. And I want to talk about how worship is a centering practice for us. It helps center us and orients us to not only to God, but to uh, the world in which we live. I believe the regular practice of worship orients us to God's place in our lives And regular practice of worship orients us to our place in the world. Um, And those are my two points. So now you know where the sermon's going. It's supposed to have three points if you're Presbyterian, but today it's only two. Few people have as high a view of worship, in my opinion, than that of Eugene Peterson, and I love his writings whenever he speaks and refers to worship. He says that our first step toward God must also be a step away from the world, and in particular, the lies the world tells us. And then let me explain what he means by that. We must come to terms with the no longer avoidable reality that we have been and are being lied to by advertisers, by entertainers, by politicians, by religious leaders, by educators, and so on. People who claim to tell us who we are, but in the process omit everything about our origin from God and our destiny in God. In other words, people who talk about life as if God's not part of it, God's not involved at all. They tell us about the world and the environment without telling us that God made it. We're told that we're inherently good, that we're born with equality, that it's good to be self-sufficient, and that education improves society, and that everything is okay. All you had to do was listen to the news in the past 24 hours to know everything's not okay, particularly for, for communities of El Paso, and Dayton, Ohio. But it's not just there, it's everywhere. It's Gilroy, it's, it could be here. Things are not all right as they are, nor will they get better if they're left alone. The biblical word for saying no to the world's lies and yes to God is repentance. It's that turning away from what you've been told and turning toward God. By choosing to worship, we come to terms with the reality that we're not the center of the world. And if for no other reason than that, to come to worship every Sunday is a good thing. To just remind yourself that, okay, everything doesn't revolve around me in this hour. Maybe the rest of the time it does. But during this hour, it doesn't need to be. 
Repentance is not only the first step to get me to worship, but it's necessary for me to participate and engage fully in worship. And I, I'm saddened by modern churches today that eliminate repentance altogether. They don't have a prayer of confession. There's no need to admit who we are in relationship to God. All it is is let's hear something inspirational uh, that I might be able to feel better about the world and my life. When we gather to worship, we're choosing to redirect and reorient ourselves according to the reality of God's existence and God's purposes. To ask the question, what is it that God expects of me? What is it that God wants for me? We say that God is the center of all that is. And certainly the songs we sing and the proclamation that's made says that's true, but when we leave here, do we continue to believe that? And do we live that way? Do we live that as if God's the center of the universe, or do the various problems that present themselves take hold and become central to our lives? Do we believe God's the ruler of all people and nations, and not whether we have certain peace treaties or whether uh, economic pacts and agreements is going to have an uptick in the market? Do we truly believe God rules over all? Do we believe God deserves our worship because of who God is? Just the character and nature of God deserves to be worshiped in addition to all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. God deserves to be worshiped because of God's nature and character, God being good, God being loving, forgiving, the fact that God redeems us, that God blesses us, that God welcomes home those who have gone far from him. If we're ever tempted to scale God down to our uh, way of thinking and our limited understanding of God, all we have to do is read a text like Isaiah 40, which, which invites us to compare God to anything or anyone else. It asks this question, who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who's weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? The nations are like a drop in the bucket, like dust in the scales. Idols are made of wood, plated with gold and silver. Earth's inhabitants, you and me, are like grasshoppers before God. God brings princes to naught and makes the rulers of the world as nothing. He created the stars, bringing them out and counting them, calling them by name, checking that they are all present. That is who we worship. When we come into the presence of God, we come into the, the majesty of the sovereign of the universe who cares about each and every one of us. Worship must have a priority in our lives because of who God is and not because we don't have any other options or we can't think of anything else to do on a Sunday morning. We may not be willing to admit it, but each of us brings personal preferences when we come to worship. We, we like things to be ordered uh, in a way that suits us. Uh, maybe more hymns than choruses, maybe um, one preacher over another, 
so on and so forth. Sometimes we even employ the word service. We say the 8 o'clock, the 9 o'clock service um, in place of the word worship. And by doing so, I wonder if we are getting confused with who it is that's being served. Do we think that we gather for the service to make sure something happens to us or is served up for us? Or is it God who's being served in worship? If we're not careful, this consumer mindset will cause us to make worship a matter of personal taste rather than offering ourselves to God, the holy, powerful creator of the universe. Perhaps rather than voice our concern over the order or elements of worship, we should start with the fact that worship orders us. It orients us to God's place in our lives. It's very similar to the discussion of the Samaritan woman and Jesus over which mountain was the right place for worship. We've allowed items of secondary importance to become the focus. Things such as style of music or instruments or apparel or paint color. The focus of worship is not our human experience because worship is not a performance, it's not entertainment, but it's this one thing and one thing only. It is the worship of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. That is why Jesus is telling this woman, it's no longer this mountain or that mountain, it's no longer this um, place of worship or the temple all of that is obsolete when the messiah comes because those who worship are to worship what god has revealed in jesus christ robert weber says it this way we don't go to worship to celebrate what we have done we don't say lord look isn't it wonderful that i believe in you that i follow and serve you No, we come to worship to praise and thank God for what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. God's work in Christ is always the focus of our worship. Well, just as worship orients us to God's place in our lives, the regular practice of worship orients us to our place in the world. Again, I turn to Eugene Peterson who says this, every call to worship is a call into the real world. The reality that God is sovereign and that Christ is Savior. The reality that prayer is our mother tongue and the Lord's Supper is our basic food. The reality that our identification with Christ in baptism is what defines our lives and our identity, not the latest fashion or some psychological insight. And when we worship like that, Peterson says, then it changes how we experience the outside world. He says, upon re-entry, I am amazed at how small it all is. How puny are its politics. All 18 months of them um, in an election year. Although it doesn't seem to matter whether we're in an election year or not, it's just front and center all the time. How paltry are 
the world's appetites, the things people go after and find satisfaction with, how squint-eyed its interests, how narrow its focus. I've just been an hour or so with friends reorienting myself in the realities of the world, the huge sweep of salvation, the minute particularities of holiness. And I blink my eyes in disbelief that so many are willing to live in such reduced and cramped conditions. In other words, people who worship God see the world differently, see people in it differently. Even someone who cuts you off in traffic or maligns you in some way That person is a child of God whom God loves. And no matter what's going on in their life, we are called to look at them in that way, to see them in a different light because because worship reorients us in the world. We don't view the world the same way everybody else does. We see it differently. Worship directs us to live out the reality of God's character such that who we are and how we live is what makes worship true. We must never try to separate our worship of God from our daily lives. For Jesus said, it's not God instead of neighbor that we're to love, nor God or neighbor that we're supposed to love, not God first, then our neighbor but God and neighbor. The gospel is a radical redirection of our lives, lived with God and one another. It has the capacity to quench thirst and become a fountain inside of us. When you drink of this water, every area of our lives become changed for the better. Well, as I mentioned earlier, the primary focus of worship is a single event, the Christ event, that is emphasized as two halves of a single whole. Word, the word proclaimed, and the word of Christ presented. Christ is proclaimed each and every Sunday in worship, and, and most of the time, at least once a month, and those who attend eight every Sunday the word of God is presented in um, the body of Christ is offered at this table. Our experience of both offers a balance of head and heart, of thought and emotion. We celebrate God's revelation not only through language and history and storytelling, but also through signs and symbols that point to a reality greater than themselves. That's why Jesus says the time is coming and it is here. He's telling this woman, I'm here. And that changes everything related to worship. When true worshipers worship God in spirit and truth, they respond to the reality of God's presence. Rather than misdirect our trust to secondary matters, or to a particular place in worship, Jesus invites us to direct our attention to God himself. Here's how Tom Wright, scholar Tom Wright, describes it. When Jesus is the lens through which you glimpse the character of God, 
you discover what it means to worship. Because you discover what it means to be loved. If your idea of God and salvation is vague or remote, or your idea of worship is fuzzy or ill-informed, then, then your worship will be affected. But the closer you get to the truth, the clearer becomes the sense of God. And the more you find worship welling up within you, the more worship becomes an overflow of who we are in Jesus Christ. That is the meal that we celebrate here. The reminder that not only um, has, has the word of Christ reoriented us toward God, but these elements remind us that the very gift of God's life, of, of Jesus' life, we find ourselves um, made alive in him. Jesus took bread, the bread that was symbolic of the Passover, of God's liberation of his people, and he made it personal and said, this is my body. This has new meaning, new representation. It refers to me and my saving of you. So whenever you eat this, then make it about me. Think of me. Take my life into yours. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. The one who believes in me will not thirst. In a few moments, the uh, elders and deacons are going to come and they're going to bring the bread to you. And as it's passed, then I invite you to pass it to someone saying, this is the body of Christ given for you. And then take it and say the same to the next person and hold on to it until all of us have been served. Representing the fact that this bread comes from one loaf and we are made one in Christ Jesus. Uh, first, I think we have a song. Yes, first we'll have a song as we prepare. <laughs>